So the same can apply to anything else that changes in value on a regular basis. So for example, interest rates, share prices, inflation, uh, changes in the price of any commodity. So that's what, that's what derivatives are all about. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place with them. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie and I am the host of today's episode. On the show with me today is Jonathan Gilmore, Head of Derivatives and Structured Products and a partner in the finance group at Travis Smith. Jonathan's clients are some of the UK's largest financial institutions, investment managers and private equity houses. And he is recognised as a leading individual by the Legal 500. During the episode, Jonathan talks about the derivatives and structured finance practice area, the work that lawyers in this practice area carry out, and the qualities that Travis Smith look for in a trainee. Jonathan also provides his view on key commercial trends and issues such as fintech and inflation. This episode was recorded on the 23rd of December 2021 and Jonathan and I also discussed the best Christmas movies to binge on over the holiday. So make sure you keep a note and have them ready for Christmas 2022. <laughs> Hi Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today on The Student Lawyer. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much Stephanie, it's a pleasure. Well, I've got lots of questions to ask you today, so I'm just going to um, just going to get into it. The first yeah. question that I have is, please, can you tell us about your journey into law and your career to date, please? Yeah, sure. No problem. So um, I wasn't sure what career I should go into when I was at school. Um, I originally thought about being a, a meteorologist, you know, a weather forecaster. That was that was what I wanted to do for years and years. Um and um, wasn't going to study law at university. In fact, I was going to study something completely different. But um, interest in law was piqued because um, uh, a few people told me that uh, they thought that it would be a, 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 good, a good career for me to look into. Um, and uh, then I became a cricket umpire. 
um, when I was um, uh, a teenager. And um, that involves learning laws and how to apply them. And uh, at the last minute, I changed my degree to law. So there I was on a trajectory into law. Um, and I didn't know what sort of lawyer I wanted to be, commercial, family, you know, conveyancing, who knew? Uh, but uh, all of the uh, big corporate law firms came and did what they called the milk round at university. Um, and I was uh, attracted to go to their events and to do vacation schemes with them. And eventually I landed a training contract at a firm called Slaughter and May, uh, where I started my career. I trained there and um, qualified into one of their finance departments, uh, where, uh, which, which covered the very broad range of finance and law. Um, and then when I was four and a half years qualified, I jumped ship to my current firm, Travis Smith, I've been there for the last um, 11 and a half years, getting over 12 years, and um, I uh, became a partner seven and a half years ago. Um, and uh, I now head uh, a department called uh, Derivatives and Structured Products. So I'm the head of that team. I do think it's great how some solid career advice combined with other kind of interests can lead people into a career in law. Uh, it sounds like you've had a very interesting journey. Um, and we're going to come on, we're going to come back on to uh, your specialism a little bit later. But could you please explain what your role as partner in the finance group um, at Travis Smith consists of on a day-to-day -day basis, please? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I mean, no, no two days are the same. Um, so there's there's a lot of variety in the role of a partner. I'd say though, it comes down to probably um, three things. Um, obviously, there's client work um, that takes up, on average, say a third of the time. Um, then there's the then there are various aspects of business development. That that's not that's not all about um, you know playing golf and having long liquid lunches like it might have been uh, back in the seventies or eighties. It's uh, it's very different to that now, but in, it includes um, uh, advocacy on industry committees. It includes um, know how and writing articles and doing webinars and and the like, as well as the more traditional marketing like uh, lunches and dinners and and other forms of client entertainment. Um, and of course, also actually um, going out there and winning new business, you know, attracting new clients to the firm. And then I suppose the, the final third is uh, a managerial role, um, sort of a combination of management and administrative responsibilities, uh, making sure that the team that, that work with you uh, is uh, looked after uh, and that the wider firm, which of course is a business, is run like a business and as partners we all have a, a stake in that uh, and and uh, and as a result we're, we're involved in all sorts of various internal committees to try and um, make sure the business is, is is run and managed appropriately. Well it does sound like that no two days would be the same and I think I do think it's very um, well, it's just so great to hear that there's so much client facing client-facing work in a solicitor's role. I think that um, 
I don't, I don't even know, maybe some students may still think it's the case where a lawyer's role is sitting at a desk all day, um, you know, doing a lot of research nonstop and amending documents. But I just think it's always um, so uplifting to hear that there is so much client facing work um, when you get to a certain level anyway. Um, so it all sounds very fun. Yeah, and, and I would just say that we that we at Travis Smith, but no doubt lots of other firms as well, um, place a big emphasis on client contact at, the, at a very junior level. Um, so yes, you know, obviously as the, you get more senior, particularly at partner level, you have that much more client exposure. But we try and encourage client exposure at all levels from training upwards. I think that's really great to hear. I mean, if you start off early, you can only get better, right? So when you do get to the stage of, I don't know, senior associate partner, you you would um, you're going to be the best at, at what you're doing. So can you um, can you explain how you did come to specialise in derivatives and structured products? But before you do, please, can you explain what derivatives and structured products are for our listeners who are a little bit unfamiliar with these terms? Sure, it's a really good question and one we get asked often. And um, uh, derivatives, I mean, really, it relates to um, it, it, it's something that is an instrument whose value changes based on the changing value of something else. So say for argument's sake, you've got uh, a difference in currency, you've got you're switching from sterling to US dollars, and the exchange rate between sterling and US dollars fluctuates on a daily basis. Um, uh, And uh, if you're entering into a derivative in respect of that uh, exposure that you have to the, the fluctuation in, in, in foreign exchange rates. Um, the underlying is the foreign exchange. The derivative changes in value in the same way as the underlying foreign exchange rate changes all the time. So the same can apply to anything else that changes in value on a regular basis. So, for example, interest rates, share prices, inflation, uh, changes in the price of any commodity. So that's what that's what derivatives are all about. And when we refer to structured products, that's a uh, a slightly um, broader term. And really, uh, from 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 our perspective, it goes beyond what people think of traditionally as structured finance. Structured finance really is about putting lots of different financial arrangements together and structuring them in a way that enables the riskiest the riskiest assets to pay the highest distributions and the safest assets to pay the lowest, uh, but to be rated more highly by credit rating agencies. So that's things like securitizations, CLOs and CDOs. So that's structured finance. Structured products we use as a looser term to cover all sorts of um, security-based finance arrangements. Um, and in terms of how I came into specialising in this area, um, well, uh, it, it wasn't as as so many partners that you you speak to, no doubt, Stephanie. Um, it, it was more by chance, um, uh, as I was saying earlier. Um, my background at Slaughter and May was a, in a very broad range of financial products, so anything from. Uh, leverage finance through to debt capital markets and securitization work, derivatives, asset finance, all sorts of things. Um, and um, 
when I came to Travis Smith, um, it was particularly well known, as it still is, for um, a uh, for a stellar private equity practice, and that for a finance lawyer means a lot of uh, leveraged loan facilities, and that's what I thought I would be coming to do and to specialise in. But um, I, I was um, shortly after my my arrival, only a few months after my arrival at Travis Smith, I went on secondment to a an investment bank. Uh, to do leverage finance work. But while I was there, that particular bank wants to do a, what's called a total return swap of its loan book. Uh, I won't get into the intricacies of what that means, but it's a derivatives transaction. And um, and the in-house legal team were asked whether anyone had any derivatives experience. And I had a bit, um, but I couldn't in any way say I was an expert. But nonetheless, there I was. I was the only person that knew anything about derivatives. So, um, so I worked on that. And um, and then when I came back to Travis Smith, um, there was suddenly a keen interest in my knowledge of derivatives, because unusually for derivatives lawyers that you'll find around the city, um, we were asked by our pensions clients to advise them on derivatives. Um, pensions are expo- pensions. Pension schemes are, are um, subject to lots of risk because they have to protect pots of money for decades to come to ensure they can pay pensions to their pensioners over the next 30, 40, 50 years or longer. And so they need to protect themselves against these fluctuating risks that I was talking about earlier, like inflation or like interest rates or like the price of equities. And so um, uh, I started to advise those clients on uh, on derivatives products. And that snowballed into more and more complex financial arrangements for pension schemes, including derivatives, but others as well. Um, and actually also uh, at around that time, so we're talking back in about 2012, um, a host of new regulations post the global financial crisis came in to start regulating the use of derivatives. Um, and lots of other clients beyond the pensions uh, client base, including a lot, lot of um, alternative asset managers, started coming to us asking for advice on derivatives regulation. And so that was our jumping in point to advising those sorts of clients as well. And that's how we built up a transactional and advisory practice in relation to derivatives. Well, thank you so much for explaining um, what these terms mean. And you were talking about getting into it by chance. Again, it, it kind of goes back to what uh, to when you entered into law as a profession. I think because you had other interests and were able to make connections, it moved you into something else. And I just I just think it's so great when people have um, a broad mind and open to trying new things. You don't really know where it can lead you. Um, and it sounds it sounds to me like that's uh, what happened to you. And when you're talking about pensions, I've always assumed that pensions were, you know, always a safe bet, always um, these pension uh, funds invest in, um, invest in things that have safe returns. But, you know, it just goes to show that there's risks in everything and a lot of work goes on to make sure that risks are kept low down. So um, I thought that was really interesting. Um, So when you were working on a deal, 
um, on a transaction and you're, um, I suppose, working with trainees, what qualities do you think um, a trainee can have to really um, add value to that um, transaction or deal? Yeah, um, and no, no two deals are the same, but the, the underlying attributes of a trainee, of a good trainee, generally remain the same, regardless of whether it's a really high-pressure transaction or whether it's a slow burner that might just mean the, the odd piece of work over several weeks, or if it's something advisory. What are those attributes? I'd say those attributes are reliability, um, that the trainee uh, is uh, someone who, if you ask to do something, uh, gets back to you quite quickly to say whether or not they're going to be able to do it or not, which, of course, is absolutely fine. We've <laughs> got to recognise trainees have um, other, um, other uh, responsibilities, including to other partners or other clients or, or outside of work. Um, but it also that they show initiative and show interest. So um, it, it's all very well being asked to do a trainee type exercise. And I'm going to give an example of preparing some board minutes, for example. Um, but you can't do that in a vacuum. Or if you do, you're not going to learn enough to progress to the next stage. So I, I, I'd hope that that trainee then asks questions about why the board minutes are being put in place, what the wider deal is about, um, why we write the board minutes in the way that we do, um, and to start delving more deeply into those questions and the answers that are given. But then there's also things like simple things, like attention to detail, um, you know, just making sure that when a piece of work comes to a partner or someone more senior for checking, that You've done the best you can. No one is going to expect you to be an expert at a at trainee level, but they would hope that you know what comes to them is um, is as good as that trainee can 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 do. And and uh, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't ask questions. They absolutely should ask lots of questions and sort them up and, and ask. But um, that there's no spelling mistakes or or. or simple errors in, in documents. And I suppose the final thing is to show initiative. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean go off and do something uh, at a tangent that might be um, totally unrelated to what, what you're working on. Um, but if you are working on something and you can envisage what you think the next step is going to be, don't wait to be asked to do it ask the supervisor or whether it's a partner or someone else whether or not they should be doing that next thing that they think is going to come up next, uh, showing that initiative. So they're the three things I would say, reliability, attention to detail and initiative slash curiosity. I suppose when you are asking questions and being um, inquisitive, then um being a little bit more proactive sometimes. I suppose the two can come hand in hand. If you ask questions, you're more confident to know, yes, I'm going to be able to do this. That's right. I mean, you know, it's not, it's also that when you're asking those questions, you might say, well, why are we doing it this way? And if the partner can't explain why, you know, you might be coming up with a gap in the document that hadn't been thought about yet. And you know, the, at trainee level, you can look up to a partner and think, 
okay, uh, they've got years of experience. I'm sure this, this particular question has been covered before. But the law changes at, a, 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 at a, a quite a frightening pace at times. And the law on the areas that I work on has changed massively over the course of my career. Um, a good question can come from anyone in the team, including at trainee level, absolutely at trainee level, because they're the ones who come with the least baggage, if you know what I mean, of, of prior experience. So um, you know, do ask questions because you might be the one that comes up with the solution that everyone's been looking for. Yeah, there's room for some creative thinking there. Yeah. Um, so you've you've kind of touched on uh, some of the responsibilities that trainees have, um, like writing up board minutes. Uh, but what what responsibilities do trainees have when working with you um, in a transactional or advisory seat in finance? Sure. So. Um, in, in finance, generally, I mean, there are there are the usual what we might call the usual training responsibilities. They tend to be things like um, cross-checking clause references in documents, um, checking them against statutory references, um, and uh, working on completion arrangements when there's a transaction coming towards its its conclusion. So we've mentioned board minutes, but other what we call conditions precedent documents uh, to, to the closing of a deal, um, which are typically relatively short form uh, letters that are associated to the, associated with the bigger deal. But actually, um, trainees get involved with far more than that um, because they also are typically involved with, uh, especially as they become more senior over their two-year training contract, get involved with negotiation of documents, drafting of documents, um, and um, a quite detailed research into some uh, areas of, uh, of, of, of key regulatory or legislative development, because clients don't come to us for, uh, don't come to us with questions if the answer is simple to find. They come to us where it's difficult to, to find the answer or perhaps where there isn't an answer, we have to take a view um, to, to advise the client which way, which side of the line to fall. So, um, so, so some interesting and, 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 and um, groundbreaking research can also take place, particularly at training level. Well, it sounds like the trainees have just got fantastic opportunities. Um, can you share with us the main risks that traditional financial institutes are, are facing at the moment? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, it will depend on, on which institution you're, you're, you're talking about and also what sector they're in. Let, let, let's, just take, um, let's just take the big banks as an example. Um, in the UK the big banks are still grappling with a change in regulatory environment, um, both because regulations seems to regulatory change comes at pace every year, uh, but also because um, in a post-Brexit environment, they have to um, ensure that they're able to be on top of and comply with um, both the regulations they, that they are used to under the EU rules and the regulations that are diverging under the UK rules. So that's that's something that, that is probably a, a big 
not necessarily a risk, but something that financial institutions have to be on top of all the time. And it is a risk because if they fail to comply, they can be subject to significant penalties and reputational loss. So that's one risk. I think um, another another big risk at the moment is in relation to ESG. Um, the, uh, they, they need to ensure that they are thinking about environmental, social and governance aspects of their business, uh, the way they invest, who their client base is, etc., um, both to uh, future-proof their businesses for the long term, but also, again, uh, because of reputational damage that can, that can accrue to them uh, if, they, if, if, they're, if, they're not, if they don't have this uppermost in their minds. And then there's uh, the emergence of um, what you might call shadow banking or um, the, the, the non-banks. So financial institutions have been doing lending, they've been um, entering into things like derivatives, instruments and structured products for, 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 for decades. Um, but what we are now seeing increasingly are um, particularly asset managers, alternative asset managers, uh, coming in and um, taking a role as uh, alongside them or and sometimes superseding them on financial transactions. Um, and the difference with them is that they are subject to lighter touch regulation generally than the big financial institutions. So they have some advantages over those big financial institutions. So, so that, that's, that's something that, they, that, that, that needs to be faced uh, more and more in the coming years. And then finally, I'd say, although there are plenty of other risks worth and headwinds worth, worth bringing out, but I think the other, the other one is um, um, technology um, and the growth of technology. Um, we are uh, increasingly seeing, and we have been some years, uh, activity in the crypto asset market, in fintech, and all of these provide challenges to financial institutions because all of these, either collectively or individually, could take the place of financial institutions in time. But what we are seeing financial institutions doing is actually uh, gripping that uh, issue and trying to develop fintech um, operations themselves or acquire fintech operations. So that's something that, uh, that, that financial institutions are definitely having to grapple with at the moment. Before we get into the second half of the episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about the sponsors of today's show and the law school that I chose to study my LPC at, and that's the University of Law. The University of Law believes in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. Their experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life experience from the start. They offer a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. I do always think that it's 
so um it's just very beneficial to read up a lot on ESG because I can see that it runs through every industry and every company so um I just I think that that is a very important one to stay on top of knowing what's going on with that um and you spoke about fintech which actually leads me on to my next question um are your clients adopting any use of fintech at all and if so can you tell us um, a little bit more about the trends that you are seeing amongst your clients who are adopting it yeah sure um so uh fintech is is big is big business um but also big business is fintech um in the sense that um, all of the large established clients that we work with um, are investing in fintech and becoming fintechs themselves. You know, that's the big banks, that's the, the, the major um, alternative asset managers, private equity houses, for example, are buying up fintech, uh, fintechs that, that started off as startups in someone's garage several years ago, but have grown and have become major players themselves. Um, we have um, particular um, interest and expertise amongst our client base in um, fintech um, payment structures, so generally around FX payments. Um, but also we're seeing more and more of the really well-established global financial market infrastructure players grasping fintech um, developing blockchain and other distributed ledger, ledger technology platforms. Um, and so fintech is now pervasive across the financial industry. And, you know, that that's also developing a, a whole new client base for us because those fintechs that started off in someone's garage um, grow they become more sophisticated and they become subject to the sorts of legislation and regulation that more um, established financial players are, are subject to and they need they need detailed and, and um, considered legal advice so um, so that that's expanded our client roster as an example um, we've recently taken on um, a cryptocurrency exchange as a as a client. Um, we know a lot about exchanges because of our work with financial markets infrastructure clients. We know a lot about cryptocurrency because of our work on derivatives in relation to cryptocurrency. And suddenly there's a new class of client that emerges from the, uh, from, from the fintech world that um, it just creates new opportunities for a law firm. Would you say that um, fintech and perhaps cryptocurrency is ESG friendly? Well, there's a lot of debate about it at the moment, and um, you'll you'll see lots of articles around um, the uh, climate impact of mining Bitcoin, uh, for example, and other and other cryptocurrencies. That industry is now really doing a lot to think about its ESG impact and how it can improve the ESG impact. Um, but more generally. Um, Technological solutions um, ha have had over the, the last several decades um, uh, a beneficial impact on climate. Um, and because they are generally more automated rather than subject to individual discretion, um, it's 
that much um, easier generally to um, code, uh, for want of a better term, um, governance requirements into uh, in, in, into the operations of fintechs. So there there, there are um, there are some potential ESG related harms in that industry, but they are um, tackling them um, and probably have been slightly overplayed. Um, and there are also lots of benefits that come from technological enhancements. So it is a one to watch. And as an example, um, we know of um, uh, cryptocurrencies that are now looking very heavily at um, how they can offset their carbon emissions. And um, they're now doing that, for example, uh, through the voluntary carbon markets. And that's an area that I and, and, and my firm have become uh, very involved with in recent years as well. Um, to um, establish the, the the market and to enter into um, financial instruments that help companies to offset their carbon emissions in a um, in in a in a safe and, and commercial manner. A great example of how every potential problem there is a solution and every risk can be mitigated. So. So you've mentioned inflation a couple of times uh, this podcast, and I would be very interested to have your thoughts on the current inflation situation. Uh, do you think it's persistent or is it um, is it going to go? Is it transitory? Who knows? It's a <laughs> simple answer. But 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 the the it's really it's 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 really a a question to pose to the quants, the economists, commercial advisors. But amongst what we're seeing in our client base, there is very much a concern about inflation uh, and inflation over the long term, which is why we're seeing so many clients um, trying to hedge against their inflation risk. But the there are underlying issues that have led to inflation, um, underlying issues around supply chain problems, around Brexit from, from the UK's perspective, around the release of lots of um, energy um, post, post um, um, well, I was about to say post-COVID, I appreciate it was still very much in COVID, but you know, each time the world opens up following a, a period of lockdown, there is a release of or an injection of, of cash into the economy and that, that raises prices and it raises uh, demand supply issues and it raises uh, wage inflation as well. So all of that leads people, I think, to think that the current inflation situation is not transitory. Whether it's going to be persistent forever is another question, but it's certainly something that seems to be with us for some time. Well, thank you ever so much for sharing your thoughts um, on that. Um, you've so. Again, you've touched on ESG, and uh, I would like to ask you if you could ex explain what sustainable financing is um, and share the benefits and risks associated with it. Cool. Um, okay, uh, sustainable finance is a huge topic, um, and it means different things to different people. But um, ultimately, it's about ensuring that financing that's available of 
companies' activities, people's activities, banks' activities, etc., is sustainable over the long term. Um, and uh, what can force it force those activities not to be sustainable on the long term? Uh, have generally focused on these three these three easy to uh, to uh, remember um, uh, capitals. You know, e, e, the E, the S, and the G. So you know, obviously, environmental risk. Um, it's uh, uh, it's something that is on the minds of, of so many people. When you talk about sustainable finance in relation to environment, you want to ensure that the, the financing uh, that is available is being sourced from sustainable projects that are, aren't going to damage the environment, but also that are going to be um, profitable over the long term. Um, if, you're, if you're looking at um, social you might want to think about what impact uh, the financing activity has. If that, if 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 you are financing activity that has a, an adverse impact on a section of society, that's not going to be sustainable in the long term because that section of society might become the dominant section of society at some point in the future. And in any event, you don't want to be causing harm to anybody. Um, you know and. If you haven't got your governance right, and governance spans so many different areas, but you know it, it includes uh, things like um, um, diversity of your of, of your workforce. It includes making sure that um, uh, the, the activities that you finance um, are that you're treating your customers fairly in, in, in when when you're when you're financing activity, all of that sort of thing. It's incredibly important because without it, the financing activity that you are promoting um, is not going to be sustainable in the long term. So that's what it's all about. The benefits should be um, should be pretty clear. Um, there are risks associated with it. Um, the risks relate to whether or not you are necessarily uh, uh, producing the highest returns for your customers you know, or your beneficiaries or, or, or whatever, uh, whichever stakeholders you're looking to serve. Um, now, I think that is generally a myth that's been burst because um, there's been so much investment in ESG financial arrangements and ESG funds um, that um, the financial return from those investments has in many cases outstripped what you might call non-ESG friendly um, investments. Um, and so you can't really say that that is a risk. But, you know, I suppose, you know, in the short term, if you're only looking to make a quick buck over the next two or three years, do you need to worry about investing in what's in, in, in um, projects that are going to be sustainable for decades to come? Perhaps not. But if you do take that route, um, you've got to think about the reputational risk immediately. Also think about the harm that might be being caused by that activity. Um, and also think about what it means for your own sustainability over the long term. So um, you know, finance shouldn't and hopefully is no more all about making a quick buck. There's certainly a lot to think about there. Um, okay, so can you tell us about your involvement with the firm's Diversity and Inclusion Board and how Travis Smith's Diversity and Inclusion and Culture initiatives are transpired throughout the firm? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, 
So um, I've been on our diversity and inclusion board for for, for um, some years now, and um, uh, it, uh, I'm on, I'm on that board uh, principally because of my chairmanship of of our faith group. So we call our our faith group our faith resources group, um, and uh, we provide resources for staff members uh, and clients that are coming in, making sure that they feel comfortable. You know, uh, observing um, what, uh, observing their faith, their religion within the workplace, um, but um, but our diversity and inclusion board um, includes representatives from uh, other network groups within the firm, um, uh, and uh, it, it also includes representatives from other key um, teams within the firm, including our graduate recruitment team. Um, as an example. Um, and uh, what we do is we share best practice between the various groups, but um, also, and perhaps most importantly, look at um, strategic matters relating to diversity and inclusion. Um, so we look at um, the data on our people, um, the sort of um, demographic trends, um, both within the legal sector and in the country as a whole, um, and we look at how diversity and inclusion um, has a beneficial impact on our, our operations and, the, and our ability to serve our clients, uh, because it does. Um, and uh, being able to show that through empirical data and through best practice discussion and collaboration is, you know, is great. And it shows you what can be achieved through diversity and inclusion. Um, in, in, in terms of how that um, is sort of uh, transpires throughout throughout the firm, I mean, there's lots of different ways that it does. Um, uh, we have um, a tremendous um, uh, CSR and diversity uh, executive and, and team uh, run by uh, Chris Edwards uh, at Travis Smith and uh, uh, there, there are lots of activities that are put on throughout the year, uh, sometimes to mark particular events um, or particular times of the year, like um, like, like Black History Month or um, or, or Pride season. Um, but um, but but also um, more ad hoc events and and uh, and activities, um, and those initiatives are pervasive, they are all the time, um, but in a good way and, and in a way that's well received uh, because um, it, it's so easy to lose focus um, when you're busy doing client work or busy worrying about running the business. You can sometimes forget how important diversity and inclusion is to serving clients and ensuring the business does well in the long term. Um, so, um, uh, they, they, those initiatives are, are born out through our network groups. Um, uh, so we have a gender balance group, an LGBT plus group, a faith resources group. We have um, uh, an, 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 uh, a BAME group and an enable group. And the enable group is uh, principally focused on issues of neurodiversity. Um, uh, and uh, all of those groups um, promote various activities. Yeah, as an example, uh, we do quite a lot around food in our firm. Um, and uh, we've had uh, some, some, some great events uh, around uh, the foods of different cultures and different religions. We've had some brilliant music events. We have a diversity inclusion book club 
where we focus on 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 books that bring out a particular strand of of diversity and protected characteristics um but we're also there to help people uh who might for example have a disability be able to uh perform the role of a solicitor just as anyone else would um and there's no reason why they shouldn't with the, with the right support so that's uh, that's something that we've focused on as well so um but it also uh, is born out in various other activities that we have so for example um uh, within our our cafe and our client hospitality suite um we are able to cater for for different dietary requirements but we also uh, are have won awards for the, the the sustainability of our food and kitchen operations and we have for example we have meat free mondays and um and we have all sorts of um uh, of uh, initiatives that that uh, that are similar to that in every team of the firm um uh, we have a a very well regarded um art program where we uh, work with uh we, we work with art students many of whom are are um are just starting out in their careers um and and help them by displaying really excellent pieces of art in in our building but also help them to set up in business and and um and 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 be able to support themselves over the long term so that that, that sort of goes beyond you might call traditional dni but um hopefully it gives you a sense that you know as with so many other law firms travis smith isn't the only but um you know we are trying also to do right by society as a whole <laughs> it really does sound like uh everybody at travis smith is really making waves I, I do understand what you're saying um, when you spoke about, you know, it's very easy to just uh, get your head down and get on with doing work because, you know, you guys are, are busy over there. Um, but, you know, having such great diversity and inclusion initiatives helps that busyness going, as we were talking about before with being um, reliable inquisitive and proactive and be having that creative thinking by including diverse people in the firm you're more likely to get that creative thinking going um and i'm amazed by all the initiatives that you have going on over there especially all the food ones because let's face it who doesn't like a good food feast at work <laughs> i hope i'm not the only one <laughs> definitely <laughs> Um, okay, so I do have one last question for you. Um, it's it's a little bit of a fun one. And that is, over the holiday, over the Christmas holiday, what are your top three films to watch? Oh, um, gosh. Um, so I'm, I'm going to make an admission. Um, I don't have a television at home. Uh, we don't have a television at home. So uh, uh, our, our opportunities for watching watching films over the holidays are, 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 are fairly limited um, and uh, uh, cinemas aren't necessarily uh, aren't necessarily the safest place to be right now but um, uh, it, but just just thinking thinking over over the, the sort of time of year it is um, and um, I'd say that um, you can't go over this season um, without uh, having a Bond movie of some sort in there—that's that, that's a, a, a 
that, that that's a, the sort the sort of movie that that, that everyone uh, will, will sort of pro- probably uh, be looking towards at this time of year. A bit of bit of energy, a bit of action. Um, while it's a little cold and grey outside, but then there's the more traditional ones. So, for example, I grew up in um, I grew up in 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 Brighton and Hove, uh, and um, uh, so so did the, um, the the author of the Snowman. Um, and uh, and if you look at the Snowman cartoon, which of course is all about this time of the year, um, you also see um, the Snowman, the little boy flying over. Some familiar sights in Brighton, and that's uh, that's a good one for this time of year. And then when you think about sort of the more wintry settings and uh, and, and and the snowy weather and the like, um, one that I like uh, it's a bit of a it's a bit of an uh, an, an, an old favourite, but uh, Doctor Zhivago, lovely lovely music, uh, beautiful acting, um, and lovely lovely scenes, uh, lovely wintry scenes. So uh, they're the sort of films that I think. Uh, are worth are worth turning your mind to at this time of year. Very good recommendations. However, if I may, could I swap you a Bond film with a Die Hard? Just, like I'm keeping the energy going, but I I would swap <laughs> <Good> that <night>. one. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today. You have provided such a fantastic insight into uh, the finance group at Travis Smith and um, and for explaining everything that you do with the derivatives and structured products. Um, I thought that was really interesting and really great key information for aspiring solicitors to have. Um, and I've had a lot of fun chatting to you as well. Thank you very much. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um... You know, I hope uh, I hope it's given some useful useful information to uh, to those who are looking to uh, become the next Travis Smith partner in the future. I'm sure it has, and thank you again. Thank you everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Student Lawyer. episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place. Through the University of Law's pro bono program, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. The University of Law will help you reach your ambitions by delivering an outstanding academic and employment focused experience honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. As soon as you begin your studies with ULaw, you'll learn how to think and act like a lawyer. Whether your aspirations are in law or other fields, their courses will balance academic rigour and practical skills so your career starts from day one. To find out more about the courses they have on offer, just click the link in the description box of the podcast. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.